You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. And so you'll remember if you're with us um, over the last couple of weeks that we are now in the thick of the betrayal of Jesus. We're advancing through the uh, betrayal account, through the, the mock and sham trials of Jesus Christ that will ultimately lead to his crucifixion. We're taking a slow walk through it. Last week, you were introduced to a couple of characters, uh, historical men, uh, Annas and Caiaphas, Annas being the deposed high priest uh, that the band of soldiers brought Jesus to first in the middle of the night, and then they brought him over to the acting high priest over the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, and we talked about the role of fear and pride in denying the truth. And then we read at the end last week that Caiaphas kicks Jesus down the line and sends him off before Pontius Pilate. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue something of a similar conversation from last week. We're in a passage of the scriptures right now where if my words feel heavy, it's because we're not given any positive examples in these texts. I'm not given anybody to point to other than Christ himself to say, be like them. Instead, we're introduced through the Word of God to several different men who are deep in different forms of wickedness and denial of the truth, and they need to be sober warnings for us. And so I will continue in that tone this morning because the text demands it. This morning, less pride and fear, although they're elements. Instead, what we're going to see is the role of the need for security and the driving ambition in men that causes them to deny the truth, to stuff their ears to the truth. We're going to see the role of religion and self-righteousness to stuff our ears and blind us from the truth. And we're going to see the risk of demanding prosperity now at robbing from us prosperity later. We're going to do this primarily through learning about some central historical characters in this text. We're going to meet Pontius Pilate. We're going to be uh, reacquainted with the Jews. And we're going to meet a man named Barabbas in this morning's text. And then we're going to contrast them in the end to Jesus and his kingdom. If you would stand with me, I'm going to read you straight through our passage for this morning, and then I'll preach it for you line by line. We are in chapter 18, verse 28. It reads like this. Then they, the band of soldiers, led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. You may be seated. So taking our passage in order, we are going to first be acquainted this morning again with the Jews. I want to point out some important details to you guys this morning. Let's read it. And so they, verse 28, led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. That was verse, or ch- verse 28. It was early morning. And this is not a small detail. We need to, as we look at the doctrines contained in here, try to stay in the story, okay? It's early morning. Jesus was praying in the middle of the night in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he is grabbed in the middle of praying, middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, he is brought before Caiaphas and Annas, and he's put through some sham questioning and then dragged off to the governor's headquarters. By the time he gets there, it's the middle of the morning. So Jesus has pulled an all-nighter here, okay? He's been beaten and mocked and questioned and now dragged before the governor's headquarters in the early morning. This should highlight for us several things, but the main thing that I want to point out for you this morning is that the Jews are willfully skipping their due process. They are willfully pushing forward this sham trial, pressuring and pushing Jesus. When they brought him before Caiaphas, the high priest over the Sanhedrin, highly unlikely at 2-3 in the morning that the full court of the Sanhedrin is present at this time, They are skipping their legal process in order to try to make expedient work of the death of Jesus so that they can get back to the Passover. And yet we read here, after it was early morning, they themselves, the Jews, did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Some kind of answer, right? What did he do? Well, clearly something, or we brought him to you. We're trying to get back to the Passover. There's a couple of things that I want to point out here. The first is that they were concerned with their defilement. The Jews would not enter the governor's headquarters because the governor's headquarters was a Gentile abode. And the Jews believed that entering the residence of a Gentile was to make themselves ceremonially unclean, and then they would not have been able to partake in the Passover if they were unclean. And so concerned with their ability to, hey, when we get done with this, we need to go and partake in this feast of remembrance for the Lord passing over our sins. Let's hurry up and kill this innocent man. 
so that we can go and enjoy our feast? How is it that they were able to be preoccupied with remaining ceremonially clean before God while making a mockery of God's word containing justice or pertaining to justice? Is it so surprising, church? It's the first caution that we see in here is, guys, you and I are not above this above being preoccupied with our ceremonial cleanliness, with our outward religious observances, while we are inwardly wicked. Blind to, even deaf to, the purity that we need inside, the cleaning that we need on the inside, because we are so sure that on the outside we're doing everything right. We're good boys, We're good girls. Surely dad is proud of us because we're law keepers. Some of you guys, your righteousness is little more than your church attendance. I don't know if I'm speaking to one or 50. Only you know. But your righteousness before God is that you don't miss a Sunday, that you don't miss a quiet time, that you're diligent in your prayer time, that you read your Bible that you're good to the poor. It's your good works that give you confidence before God while you turn a blind eye to your inward wickedness that needs cleansing by the Holy Spirit. You are depending on a self-righteousness, a lesser righteousness, a righteousness that will not cover you when you stand before the judgment of God. And you're sure you're right. And you just want to get back to the Passover. Just want to get back to your religious observances. It's dangerous. What's so dangerous about it is that I have very little expectation that I can say it in any sort of way that could get through to you if this is you. Because the Jews were standing before Jesus. The the Jews had the truth speaking this truth to them and they could not hear it. Some of you, as I speak this morning, believe that I am not speaking to you, and I am. But I don't know who. But the Lord knows who. In my prayer, my labor this morning, as I paced and prayed for 45 minutes before preaching this morning, is that the Holy Spirit would overcome your blindness and overcome your deafness, that maybe some of you who have claimed for 20 years to know Christ, but all you've known is religion, that you might repent for the first time and receive inward cleaning by the Holy Spirit. This is what the Jews so desperately needed But all they could care about was their ceremonial cleanliness so that they could take the Passover with no regard for their inward condition. I also want to point out that Pilate comes out to them. So there's a little bit of a a history that we need to learn about uh, the the person Pilate. I think I said said Caiaphas. About Pilate. Pilate was a, a Roman prefect over the region of Judea. It's important, I think, sometimes when you're talking to Christians, um, they, they use the term Bible stories, and it's a fine term, but I, for me, it has like connotations of fiction. 
to say the term Bible stories. Right? We're talking about historical men, historical events, real people in real time who were standing on real ground in real history. And there's a lot that's known about Pontius Pilate outside the Bible. He shows up in a lot of historical works uh, documenting this era in history in the Near East. And what we know about Pontius Pilate is that as the Roman governor over the region of Judea, that he had military, judicial, and financial responsibilities, and that he was the leader of 500 to 1,000 troops, and that what he did that those who came before him did not do is he tried to erect the Roman standards all throughout the holy city of Jerusalem. And so he had erected images of Caesar and emblems of the Roman Empire throughout the holy city, but the prior prefects didn't do that in order to keep the peace with the Jews. But he insisted upon it. And so there's a story that the Jewish historian Josephus documents in his historical text, The, the, the Jewish Wars. He writes that the Jews held a five-day appeal. They sent a delegation to Caesarea where Pontius Pilate worked from, and they appealed for five days for him to remove these Roman standards from their holy city. On the sixth day, History documents that Pilate sent armed guards out to the crowd and they drew their swords and they said, accept the Roman standards or meet your death. And so the, the Jews fell down on their knees and they bore their necks and they said, we'd rather die than have these idols erected in our holy city. Functionally calling his bluff and he removed the standards. Not long after, history documents that Pilate took funds from the sacred treasury to build aqueducts. Luke documents that he mixed the blood of Galileans with the sacrifices. The only time that people made their own sacrifices in the Jewish rituals was during the Passover. That means that on a previous Passover, that Pilate had Galileans slain as they were making their Passover sacrifices, such that their blood was mixed with the blood of their sacrifices. But the event that is most interesting to me as we look at this interaction between the Jews and Pilate was that he erected these shields that bore the name of Emperor Tiberius, and he erected them in the former palace of Herod. And the Herods objected to this, and so did the Jews, and so they wrote a letter to Emperor Tiberius begging him to take them down, and Tiberius was infuriated with Pilate. And so he wrote back demanding that he remove the shields and move them to the temple of Caesar in Caesarea. And so Pilate is already falling out of favor with the Romans, and he's always been out of favor with the Jews. Sometimes Pilate is presented, depending on if you've heard these texts preached before, as a man who was morally conflicted with what to do, but I don't get that picture at all. I see a man who is obsessed with his security, his position in Rome, and his ambition, who hates the Jews, has always hated the Jews, and who here is walking on thin ice, and the Jews know it because they've had some victories. They've called him out twice and won. Once when he erected the Roman standards in Jerusalem and threatened to slay them, they stood him down. And again, when they wrote a letter to Tiberius, and Tiberius overruled him. 
And so they bring Jesus before him, and they will not come inside. And Pilate, who is no respecter of the Jews, respects their custom, and he comes out to them. And so we see real weakness from him there. He's scared because his position is in jeopardy. And so he said, what charges do you bring against this man? And they tell him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus needed to die on a Roman cross. They weren't going to stone him. He had to be crucified in accordance with the prophecy. But Pilate answers, trying to evade the thing, take him yourself. And they appeal to the Roman law. They could have, he, they, because the accusation here was of, of, of heresy and blasphemy, they could have stoned him. They could have killed him according to Jewish law. But the Romans, one of the things that they imposed on the Jewish people was that they were not allowed to carry out capital punishment. Only the Romans were allowed to do that. And so they appeal to that, and they say, we, well, we can't do it. You've got to do it. Of course, in Acts, they forget all about that as they stone Stephen, don't they? And so Pilate enters his headquarters again, and he calls Jesus, and he says to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And this is an interesting response from Jesus, isn't it? He wants to know, are you asking of your own accord, am I the king? Or are you just repeating what was said to you? This is a very loving question for him to ask Pilate. And I want you guys to remember that last week I said Jesus gives the people so many opportunities to repent. Because if Pilate is wondering for himself, are you the king? There's a real opportunity here for him to become acquainted with the king. But if he's just going through the line of questioning that's been handed to him, then there's no hope for him to hear the truth. And what Pilate is hoping to hear here, I'm, 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 this is some conjecture, is Jesus say, yeah, I'm a king. I'm a, I'm a king of Rome. Because now he has justification to kill him. But if he's just some Jewish king, some religious king in some other sense, he doesn't really care. And Jesus doesn't give him the out. He answers his question with a question. And Pilate answers, and you can hear the disdain in his voice, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And of course, Pilate skips over all the cool stuff and says, oh, so you are a king. And Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. And this is better translated as, as it is as you say. If you read all the gospel accounts, he's saying yes. You say that I am a king. It's as you say. For this person, for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. 
And Pilate says to him, what is truth? And so before I make comment, which I'll try to save for a little bit on the nature of the kingdom of God, I want us to conclude our understanding of what Pilate's going through here. Pilate has to keep the peace here. It's a three strikes and you're out type of situation. In fact, he's going to be removed about three years after Jesus is crucified, either way. But he knows he's on thin ice and he wants to protect his, his job security. He's got ambitions in Rome. And this is what he cares about. And so we cannot hear what Jesus is saying. He's asking with the intention of hearing what he wants to hear so that he can do what he has to do. And so many of us approach Jesus this way. We have our ambition and we have the security that we demand. And so when we talk to Jesus, we need him to say things before we ask. And so we hear what we want to hear. I asked you this question last week. When you pray, do you always hear back? the thing you were going to do anyway. Does the will of God always somehow happen to be what you were going to do anyway? Who are you talking to? Who is your Lord? What is your source of truth? Pilate hears, so you are a king. Got what he was looking for. And answers back to Jesus' claim, what is truth? You could take that comment a lot of different ways. I think the way we ought to take it is the way that we speak it. We like to think that truth is the most unknowable thing in the world. We're not unlike former generations in this way. Always asking questions in order to get to the next question with no real interest in getting to the answer. And we think that's highly academic of us. We think it shows great humility to pretend the truth is unknowable while the truth is standing in front of him, wearing flesh and bone, What is truth? He cared enough to ask, didn't care enough to stick around for an answer. After he said this, he went back outside. Is this you? Tossing a word towards the desire to know the truth, but not willing to stick around for the answer? Does the truth threaten your ambition, your security, your religion, your self-righteousness? And so you can't stick around for the answer? Do you know the truth, church? Do you know Jesus Christ? He said, I am the way and the truth and the life you see, Jesus said, you say that I'm a king and it's for this purpose that I was born and for this purpose that I have come. And these words are super specific, aren't they? We don't say that babies come, right? We say they're born, but we don't say that they come. 
Jesus is testifying to Pilate, and he's testifying again to you what has been testified of first importance all throughout this gospel, that Jesus Christ was born, but that Jesus Christ came. That it was both, that he was fully God and fully man, that he existed before he was born. He came and was born. Fully God, fully man. What is truth? This is the truth. Listen close. God created mankind in his image to dwell with him, to glorify him, and to enjoy him forever, eternally. But our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, in the garden, despite the perfection of God and the goodness of his dwelling with them, rebelled against him and put themselves on the throne that only he belonged in. They disobeyed God and they were thrust they and all humankind after them, into sin, original, inherent sin. So that when you sin, church, with your mouth, when you sin in your mind, when you sin by your deeds, these are merely outward manifestations of an inward condition. You are desperately sick apart from Christ. And when you sin, you are doing what is natural. You are by nature children of wrath, apart from Christ. None is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin are death. You and I, in our state of sin, are morally impoverished, unable in this state to overcome our wickedness in order to present ourselves as righteous to God. And with the wages of sin being death, we are due the penalty of sin, which is to be eternally separated from God, to be always making payment and to never be paid. We are destined, apart from Christ, to dwell eternally in hell, separated from our Lord. We need help. That's the truth. And the truth is there is but one mediator between God and man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, God, taking on human flesh for you, born of a virgin, living a sinless life, perfectly obedient to the just demands of God upon mankind, dying a sacrificial, atoning death for you and I, laid in a tomb, then three days later, rising again from the grave, conquering sin and death for you, before appearing before a great cloud of witnesses, testifying to his resurrection, and then ascending before a great cloud of witnesses to the right hand of the Father, where he reigns eternally today, making perfect intercession for the church. He and the Father sent the Helper to indwell the church, to advance the mission of the kingdom on the face of the earth through the proclamation of the gospel that by hearing that the remnant from the nations would be saved. And then on a day that only the Father knows, Christ will return. And when he returns, he will rescue us not just from the penalty and the power of sin, but from the very presence of sin. And he will reign eternally bodily with you if you've received his grace by faith through repentance of your sin. 
What is truth? This is the truth. And everything else is a lie. Anything less than Jesus is not enough. Anything more than Jesus separates you from God. If you need Jesus and, then you don't have Jesus. He alone can justify you before the Father. Pilate wasn't interested in this, tr- in this truth. The Jews were not interested in this truth. He says this, after he said this, what is truth? Pilate went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release you to you, the king of the Jews? And they cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. If you're reading the ESV like me, you'll see a footnote on that word robber. Another word there is insurrectionist. You pull all the gospel accounts together in history, and we learn some things about Barabbas. Barabbas is a notorious insurrectionist. He is a murderer. He is a thief. And as an insurrectionist, he was seeking liberation from Roman occupation by force, so he would have been very popular with some of the Jews. But really, Barabbas was brought before Pilate on the same charges as Jesus at the core. The whole temptation that the Jews were trying to to bring before Pilate was, this guy's dangerous, you need to kill him. The charges, they're not mentioned in John, but they're mentioned in the other Gospels. The charges that they bring before Pilate are that Jesus is a tax evader who is encouraging others not to pay their taxes, that Jesus is calling himself a king, he's leading the people astray, he stirs up the people. They're going to say, to let him go, anyone who lets him go is no friend of Caesar. They're going to say here in the next passage, we have no king but Caesar. They're putting Pilate in a spot. This man is a threat to Rome. And if you don't deal with him, I'm sure Tiberius will have something to say. And so he brings before them an actual insurrectionist who's actually murdered a dude, who's actually stolen, who's actually wanting to overthrow Rome by force. And they say, we'll take him. Give us Barabbas. And this is my third warning to you, church. You see the Jews looking for righteousness in their religion, in their religious observances, with no regard for their inward condition. You see Pilate looking for security and looking to his ambition for his earthly comfort, unwilling to hear the truth unless it serves those ends. And then you see Barabbas demanding prosperity now. The judgment of God was on the nation of Israel. This is clear. These are, this is thematic throughout the Bible. They're occupied by a foreign nation. They've got idols erected in the holy city. They are being oppressed and afflicted. The judgment of God is on the people. Do they repent? No. Just like Peter, Barabbas pulls out the sword. We'll overthrow him. Historically, this always happens during the Passover. 
The Jews all come to the holy city all together. This is a ripe time to claim you're the Messiah if you're going to do that. And so you make all kinds of claims during the Passover about who you are and, 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 and how you should be followed and you can stir up the people and you can get them to revolt. And so normally when, you know, Pilate's reigning from Caesarea, but he's always in Jerusalem during the Passover because there was always a hassle during the Passover. And apparently something's already taken place because there's a dude, Barabbas, who's already been brought to him, but he hasn't been tried yet. He's sure they're going to pick Jesus. They pick Barabbas. This one I see a whole lot in the church. We demand prosperity now. And we think that we advance the kingdom of God by force. We make the kingdom of God like the kingdoms of the earth and we believe that we advance it by force. Barabbas was something of a hero. He's always presented like the scum of the earth. The Jews probably loved him. Brave dude. They hated the Romans. This guy was an insurrectionist. They wanted liberation, and he, this was a guy who was willing to do it by force. Not the king, but they said, give us that guy. We want that guy. But think about the nations of the earth, friends. Think about the empires of the earth. The Roman Empire, you can pay 10 bucks to go tour the rubble. Ten bucks to go tour the rubble of one of the greatest empires that ever existed. But the church obsesses herself sometimes with wedding herself to power, to earthly power, as if we get prosperity now if we can just advance the kingdom of God by wedding ourselves to earthly power. And this happens throughout history, including in the Roman Empire. Christianity would eventually become the official religion of the Roman Empire. To what end now? $10 rubble in that empire. The city of Rome still exists. The Vatican City, a beacon of heresy. Traded in the truth for a lie. Demanding prosperity now. The Catholics have a pope sitting on a golden throne who can do nothing to cleanse them for their sin, but believing that they have an intercessor between them and God. And it's someone other than Jesus. It's the priest, it's the deceased saints. Guys, are you functionally Catholic? You're here in this church, but you appeal to everything but Christ for your right standing before God. You, th you toss a bone to the name of Christ, but all of your rituals and religion communicate that your hope is somewhere else. 
that it's by my good works and my tithes and my offerings and my, and my prayers and, 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 and these holy people who stand in for me. In some of our coffees together, the reason why I'm on this, I'm hitting this, this hard, guys, is because in some of our coffees together, some of you guys talk to me like you're going to be okay once you confess your sin to me. I need you to hear this as a gentle rebuke. I am not your mediator between you and God. Some of you, there's just this exhale as you say the thing to me but you still fear going to God with it. And in those moments, all I'm praying for you is let this be a dry run for them as they go to, before they go to God with it. I want you guys to experience, to taste and see for yourself what it is like to have unfettered access to the throne room of God when you confess and to expect to receive grace and mercy because you are covered in the blood of Christ. Everything else will fail you. No one is sufficient to save you from your sin but Christ. Barabbas can't do it. He already tried and he's already in chains. They got to release him. He's just going to die again but we put our hope in some dumb stuff. It's routinely proven itself to fail. But we're going to wed ourselves to power. Think about the history of the church wed to the powers in England, the throne of England. What of it now? England is one of the most postmodern, unreligious nations on earth. America's soon to follow. What am I saying? Am I saying that Christians shouldn't run for office? They shouldn't try to influence education or whatever? No. Like, be good citizens in your exile. Seek to do justice. Seek to, seek to bring about the good things of God. But you don't advance the kingdom of God by making the unbelieving world look more like it. You advance the kingdom of God by spreading the gospel and by people being brought from death to life. Jesus will return and remove the presence of sin. He will do that. He's promised to do that. And on that day, he will reign bodily and we will reign with him bodily. That's a promise and, and he carries that out. Your job is to gather people while you wait for his return. I don't teach here that we build the kingdom. I teach that we gather the remnant while we wait for the king. It's different. It oftentimes looks like kingdom building because good things happen where the gospel reigns. But that's not the goal. The goal is not to reform the earth. The goal is to save the lost. If we get that wrong, we'll call for Barabbas. How many of you guys have chosen your Goliaths to represent you in battle? Somebody who's really good at articulating your talking points, your talking heads. You've 
chosen your sources, you've chosen your Barabbases to put them out there, and these guys are going to fight for you. They're going to advance your pet issues on the face of the earth. You're going to dunk on sinners. To what end? A little more comfort? Prosperity now? While people are dying and going to hell? Your future is secure. You can live like it. Less concern for security now and more concern for eternity later. I remember uh, an illustration by a pastor, um, Francis Chan, who he did it on a, a stage one time like 15 years ago. He grabbed a piece of string and he had somebody hold it over there and he walked to the other side of the, of the room with the other end of the string and he said, pretend this string is eternity and then he took out a sharpie and he marked a line on the string and he said, this is now. This is the beginning of mankind to the end of mankind and the rest of this string is eternity and we are obsessed in the church with improving this sliver with no regard for eternal matters. Friends, you are an eternal people who will reign eternally with your eternal God. We can live that way. We don't need to overthrow Rome. They're going to be rubble for 10 bucks to tour anyway. All of it is. Christ will remove the presence of sin when he returns. And so we see, everyone who is of the truth hears his voice. And this is our encouragement. Christ is a, is a different kind of king and he's got a different kind of kingdom. He came for us. He took on flesh. He lived for us. That gospel message that I preached to you, it's actually true, turns out. And you can trust him. And it looks like in these sham trials, like he's losing ground, doesn't it? But the way of this kingdom is not like the ways of the world. It advances by faith and not by force. As he lays down his life, he saves the remnant. Why do you think that your participation in the kingdom is going to look different than Christ's participation in the kingdom? He tells Peter, put down the sword, and you're like, he meant Peter, not me. No, he meant you. Lay down your life. He who would save his life will lose it, but he who will lose his life will save it for eternal life. He came for us. He laid down his life. I love this quote as I wrap up here. 19th century preacher Octavius Winslow said, So completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself that he created the tree upon which he was to die and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to the accursed wood. Like He was not caught off guard by any of this. And he's not caught off guard by any of your persecution or any of your hardship. This whole story was written from beginning to end in the creative heart of God with this chief end that he would glorify the Son before the ransom church. He will have his way. So why do we spread the gospel? I'm going to end with this. Why ought we march on the nations with this message of the gospel to advance the kingdom of God, which is so different from the kingdoms of the world? Why ought we to do that? Because we have total confidence that our king, who sovereignly reigns, will have his way. 
On the one hand, I get so discouraged knowing just how sick and depraved we are in our sin. Why share the gospel at all? Who can hear it? Who can believe? Well, on the other hand, to say, the Holy Spirit is awesome. Who? Every last one that he wills. And since you don't know who those are, you just preach the gospel. I believe someone in this room today may come to Christ on account of the Holy Spirit. And you can have faith that Christ, whose way upward was downward, that you can go and lay down your life and share this message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and expect to see people saved. And so that's my charge for you. To reject the approach of Pilate. To pretend the truth is unknowable so you can do what you're going to do anyway. To reject the approach of the Jews. To say, since I'm doing pretty good anyway, I don't need grace. I don't need Christ. To reject the way of Barabbas. To say, I'll take prosperity now. Give me my sword. And to embrace the way of Christ. Lay down your life and spread the truth. Because those who belong to the truth, those who are the possession of God, those who have been given to Christ will hear it. So let's go and grab them. Mercy's door. Let's pray.